Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. So fun to worship with you. Uh, hey, if you're here and you feel far from God, or maybe it's been a, uh, it's been a little bit since you've been in church, uh, really it's an honor to have you today. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we're we're going to continue on in our series, American Gods. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and also Matthew 16. Matthew 16. So if you're new to the Bible, that's going to be near the back half and what we call the New Testament, which is a collection of writings about the life of Jesus, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. While you're turning there, I want to tell you the story. Uh, sometime in the year 1820, Thomas Jefferson went to a bookshelf and he pulled down a copy of the King James Version Bible along with some scissors and some glue. And he was really disturbed by the religion of his day and what was happening around him. And what he did is he took the, the scissors, he actually took a razor blade, and he began to cut away uh, sections of the Gospels that he found personally disturbing or unbelievable and began to take the parts that he liked and pasted it together in, to create his own version of the Gospel. And he titled this, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, what Jefferson did is he removed any sort of reference to the miraculous or uh, to the supernatural. He took out all of the resurrection accounts and any sort of passages that hinted at the deity of Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, I've performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his, and uh, his as in Jesus's, and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated religion. Uh, Jefferson felt like he was able to approach the Gospels, approach the Bible, and really easily discern, here are the diamonds, and here's the dunghill. Here's the good stuff that I, that I like and want to receive and want to keep, and here's the stuff that should be cut away that really isn't believable. Um, now, you might be sitting here thinking like, man, that, what, what kind of... Uh, what kind of arrogance does it take to pull down a Bible and actually with scissors and tape cut out verses and sections and create your own version of the Bible? Like what kind of uh, arrogance does that take? I would never do that. But the reality is that you and I, what we subconsciously do, uh, even if not with scissors or with a razor blade, what we subconsciously do is we drift towards certain passages and certain truths and we naturally drift away from others. You do it and I do it. This is just the reality of what we do. And even though we would never actually post and create our own version, a lot of us subconsciously have done that, right? So here's what Tim Keller says. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And then I love this from Anne Lamott. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all of the same people that you do, right? So here's what I want to do. I want to I look at a passage out of 2 Timothy chapter 3 um, because we're continuing the series American Gods. And what we're going to do today is look at perhaps the most pervasive God in American culture. Like, you might think, oh, we're, we're past this. Uh, we're not religious anymore. We don't worship uh, like they did in the old days where Zeus and Artemis, and they had these actual constructed deities that they bowed down to. But what we have in our culture is other gods with different names that we've attached affection and love and devotion for. And the god that we're going to look at today is probably the most pervasive god that's worshiped in our culture. Uh, and listen, you might even be here and say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but there's a chance that even as a follower of Jesus, you're going you're gonna to notice some worship of this God in your own heart. 
And so 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul says something I think is really profound. But understand this, verse 1, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Pause there. Does it feel like we live in times of difficulty at all? Does it kind of feel like the world has gone mad a little bit? I don't know if you feel this at all, but I definitely do. Uh, let me just give you uh, some tensions that a pastor recently pointed out, a guy named John Tyson recently pointed out some tensions that are alive and well in our cultural moment. Um, he says that we have the rise of gay rights and also the rise of the alt-right at the exact same time. We have the first African-American president in our history followed by the election of Donald Trump, which is probably the most large political swing that we've ever seen. Uh, we have the loss of religious li liberty for bakers and pizza shop owners alongside of the election to the Supreme Court of a pro-religious liberty Supreme Court justice. There's the massive rise of those who religiously identify themselves as nuns. You know, when they're taking a survey, no religious affiliation. There's this rise in people identifying themselves as nuns. And yet, alongside of that, there's the rise of megachurches and celebrity pastors. A pastor in Tennessee is told to step down because when he was in his early 20s, he made a move on a 17-year-old girl, which was wrong and tragic and heartbreaking. But at the same time, in Hollywood, Call Me By Your Name is a film celebrating a relationship with a 17-year-old boy and a man in his mid-20s. We have the, the Me Too movement rushing through our world at the exact same moment that Shades of Grey, uh, picturing the sexual domination of a woman, is the fastest and largest-selling book among women of all time. We have the rise of hate speech and the defending of free speech. We have the normalization and the obsession with technology and the desire to get rid of it all together at the exact same time. Can anybody really understand what's happening in our world right now? Do you feel these tensions in your soul at all? Do you feel this? It's like, man, this is just bizarre. It's like, what, what's, there are times of difficulty, uh, Paul says, that are headed your way. But what's really interesting to me is not just that. It's not just that he says, hey, in the last days, there's gonna be times of difficulty where even for Christians, it gets really confusing. How do I, how do I live out this uh, following Jesus in this cultural moment? What does that look like? But he goes on to say this. Understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, verse two, for people will be lovers of self. Now, today's going to be interesting because instead of really unpacking a ton of uh, uh, scripture, a ton of passages, what we're going to do is take that one thought right there that people will become lovers of self, and we're going to spend a lot of time before we get to Matthew 16 talking about that. Today, what we're talking about is the God of self. And this is probably the most popular, pervasive, uh, largely held to God, near and dear to so many people, uh, so many of our hearts. And actually behind this weird polarization in our culture, behind all of the decisions of why we do what we do and uh, why we work where we work and what we buy and where we live and all of these things, behind all of the decisions that we make is this God often, this God of self. So where do you see this God at work in our world today? Well, that's a really difficult question to answer because the God of self is probably one of the most elusive and hard to find, hard to see and notice God in our society. It's kind of like if you went up to a fish and said, hey, what is water? Do you see water? The fish would be like, I don't know what water is because the, the, like, it's in water and its worldview is water and it's, it's hard to notice what you're swimming inside of. 
It's the same for us in our culture. It's like, what is the God of self? What's so pervasive in our culture, it's almost hard to detect and hard to spot and hard to see where this God of self comes up. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of take a minute and unpack some cultural realities, some things that have shifted in our culture and then slowly start to unfold for you. Here's where this God of self shows up and, and what are the potential dangers of this God? What are the sacrifices that this God demands of you and, and, and how does Jesus confront this God with a better way. So that's where we're headed. Let me just unpack our cultural moment. Uh, Here's the first thing that I want you to see is that our understanding of ourselves in this moment in history has radically shifted. Uh, People way smarter than me, philosophers and cultural commentaries, uh, commentators, they would look at our culture and they would say that about post-World War II, there's some really dramatic shifts and changes in how humans thought of themselves as humans in the world. Right? So prior to World War II, you had people that really looked up to authority structures and government and religion and parents and kind of received tradition was this valuable thing. And, and the idea, p- p- late 1800s, early 1900s, the idea was that you can actually have, with the right political system and the right democracy and the right received tradition, you can actually uh, acquire this utopia on earth that if we just... Uh, if we put all of our hope in government and authority and the right things, then we're going to experience economic prosperity. We're going to experience social justice. We're going to experience a beautiful world. But then World War I happened. And then World War II happened. And now what you had was like all the stock that we were putting in governments and and democracy and and economic prosperity, that, that foundation began to shift and change and move and be affected. And all of a sudden, for the first time in history, like never before, people turned dramatically inward and no longer looked outside of themselves for meaning and value. Have you ever heard of uh, Abraham Maslow? Some of you are like, oh, that was the boring guy that I had to read in high school. Uh, But he was a humanistic philosopher, and you've probably heard about him at least in high school or college. And in the fall of 1959 at a psychology conference in Cincinnati, Maslow, this famous humanistic psychologist, he spoke about the total collapse of all sources of value outside of the individual. And here's what he argued. He argued that there'd been such a breakdown of authority and a realization that economic prosperity and political democracy, it can't provide the life of value and meaning that we thought it could. So here's what he said. He said, there is no place else to turn but inward to the self as the locus of values. So here is the shift in this culture. Instead of conforming yourself to this outside authority, this, this broader system of government and parents and received tradition and religion where you actually take all these weird disordered uh, loves and desires in your heart and conform to that, what began to happen is everybody started turning inward and the world became the canvas by which we can express ourselves. The world became this, uh, this uh, audience for us so that we can stand on the stage and just live out whatever we want to live out inside of ourselves and it was a dramatic shift. Keller, Tim Keller says, Uh, that this vision basically went from let me sacrifice for others to let me just assert myself. So let me read this to you. He says, uh, kind of describing this cultural moment, he says, I find myself not by self-giving to something outside, but through self-expression of something inside. 
And this leads to the second major cultural change that we've experienced over the last little bit. And this is what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, calls the age of authenticity. Some of you might have heard that. That might be a new phrase to you. The age of authenticity. What does that mean? Well, basically, here's what it means. It means that now the highest value in our world and in our culture is individual freedom and self-expression and autonomy and just defining who you want to be for the world. That's the highest ultimate value. And so you should just pursue happiness for yourself, however you define that, at all costs. It's the age of authenticity. There's a guy named Jonathan Grant who wrote a really, really fascinating and helpful book called Divine Sex. And in that book, he basically defines the age of authenticity like this. Let me just read this. Modern authenticity encourages, encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The one rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing that we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any, any such impositions would undermine our unique identity. And the authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. Now, do you, can you feel this a little bit in our culture? Do you see this happening where there's this age of authenticity and, and what matters most is your individual freedom and happiness to pursue yourself at all costs, even to the detriment of other people? Do you see that? Maybe you don't yet. So here's what I want to do is I just want to ask the question, well, where do we actually see this in culture? Like where does this show up in our society in the air that we breathe and it's all fueled by the God of self? Where does this show up? Well, let me give you a few ways. Uh, we see it in kids' movies all the time. So I've got three kids. I've got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and I've got a seven-month-old little boy. And so what that means is I watch kids' movies all the time. That's just what I do. Like, I've just given up all hope of seeing Black Panther and other normal movies that people are watching. And I just watch kids' movies all the time. And, uh, and if I'm honest, I actually really love it, you know, because Pixar, like, has kind of saved parenting for us a little bit by making movies for kids interesting and funny again. And so I love this, but here's what's really crazy. There's a guy named Luke Eplin that wrote a really fascinating article for The Atlantic. And just listen to the title, You Can Do Anything, Must Every Kids' Movie Reinforce the Cult of Self-Esteem? And in this article, he just begins to unpack how kids' movies are, are really highlighting this God of self, this God of just uh, individual expression at all costs. Here's what he says. He says, these movies revolve around the anthropomorphized outcasts who must overcome the restrictions of their societies or even species to realize their impossible dreams. Almost uniformly, the protagonist's primary, primary liability, such as Dumbo's giant ears, eventually turn into their greatest strength. Now here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to read the rest of his quote to you where he starts to identify movies that do this, but what I'm going to do is I'm not going to tell you what the movie is. I actually need you to tell me what the movie is, all right? And I'm going to be really frustrated and bummed if you leave me hanging on this. So we're going to test like your kids' knowledge right now of, of kids' movies. And if you don't have kids and you don't see kids' movies, I'm really sorry. So here we go. A fat panda hopes to become a kung fu master. You guys are on it. A, a sewer-dwelling rat dreams of becoming a French chef. Great movie. An 8-bit villain yearns to be a video game hero. Oh, that was, that was sad on that one. You guys haven't seen that. 
All right, Wreck-It Ralph. An unscary monster pursues a career as a top-notch scarer. Man, I'm so proud of you right now. So proud, right? And then the article goes on and it, and it highlights two movies in particular that have the exact same storyline, but from two different producers. Two, same, two stories with the same story. Turbo. Have you guys seen Turbo? It's a great movie. It's about a garden snail that dreams of racing in the Indy 500, right? Now, that's funny, but it's also like, oh, there's this uh, individual expressivism at its finest. Like, I don't care that I'm a garden snail. I can do whatever dream and desire I have, even if it's crazy. Or here's another one, Planes, which is about a crop duster dreaming of competing in wings around the globe race. By the way, uh, a crop duster is like not a fast plane, if you're curious. Th- those are slower. <laughs> they're not racing planes. So he goes on to say this. He says, both of these films are about restless characters that never wake up to reality. Crop dusters cannot fly faster than racing planes. Snails can't go faster than race cars. The bad guys are always the naysaying authority figures who need to be enlightened about the importance of never giving up on your dreams, no matter how irrational, improbable, or disruptive to the larger community. This is the God of self in our culture. It's you have something inside of you, dreams and desires and loves, and they're, they're good and you should express them and you shouldn't conform. The world is your canvas, man. Anyone that says otherwise, anyone that would put a restriction on you or would tell you no, they're, they're after uh, zapping your happiness. It's about you, man. You do you. You see this on Twitter all the time. Uh, by the way, I'm really grateful for Kanye West because he's just hooking me up with sermon content right now. So let me show you a tweet that he sent out. He's uh, tweeting a book. So here's, here's part of one that he sent out the other day. Don't follow crowds. Follow the innate feelings inside of you. Do what you feel, not what you think. Thoughts have been placed in our heads to make everyone assimilate. Follow what you feel. The irony of that, by the way, is that he's literally placing a thought inside of your head to tell you not to listen to thoughts that have been placed inside of your head, right? Uh, we see this in the common wisdom of our day, and this is just the common wisdom. So uh, I found this photo, this uh, art piece in a bathroom of a place that I frequent. So what it says. The thing that makes you happy, yes, do that. Much of the advice that we give each other today is, yeah, man, you do you. If it makes you happy, do that. We see the God of self in the paralyzing fear that's common among millennials. Uh, just millennials, if that's you, I'm, I'm in that. 1981 onward, raise your hand so I can see you. Man, so glad you're with us. Uh, here's the crazy thing about us, and I feel this too. We have this paralyzing fear inside of us because we've been told our whole lives, hey, you can crush it, man. Whatever dream you have inside of you, live up to it. Go for it. You can crush it. But the problem is we're all, we're all afraid and terrified that if we actually do something and we don't crush it, we're gonna have to come face to face with the fact that we're deficient. And so we don't actually act, and we have this paralyzing fear. It keeps us from doing things. It keeps us from from reaching out and asking a girl out or asking, like it keeps us from doing any sort of normal basic human functions because it's like, man, if I do this, I've got to blow up and be a YouTube sensation or I've got to become Insta-famous or something or or else I'm a failure. So I've got to find whatever my thing is, and until I do that, I'm just not going to do anything. We see this in our marital struggles. We'll hear married couples say all the time, well, we just, we just aren't compatible anymore. 
or they'll say, uh, we have irreconcilable differences. And when you hear that in a marriage, what that means is, well, she just won't do what I'm wanting her to do. I've got these internal desires and thoughts, and, and she just won't get there. We've got these irreconcilable differences. Or I'm just not happy anymore. As if like happiness in marriage is, is the point. Even though no culture ever in the history of marriage ever made happiness the ultimate be-all, end-all. Because that crushes marriage. Right? So here's what we see all over. We see it, by the way, in the church. In the culture of consumerism. When people say, well, what are you going to do for me? Or, well, I, I've got to decide if I can be a part of this church because what if they put too much on me? What if they put too many restrictions on me or too much demand on my time or my money or my whatever? So we see this like culture of consumerism and it's driven by the God of self. We see it in our approach to the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's like, man, the Bible's boring. Well, the Bible, when it's about you, is actually a really boring book right? There's only a few nuggets here and there, and you're going to probably camp out on the Psalms almost entirely. Um, but, but if the Bible's actually a story about God and what he wants to do in our world and what he's done for us and bringing us back to himself, then it's really an exciting story. But what we've done is we've turned it into a, a narrative about me, and therefore it's boring. We see this most, most devastatingly we see this in our relationship to Jesus. I think this is the scariest thing of all, that you can actually say, I'm a Christian, and I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a genuine, true follower of Jesus. But the way that that functionally expresses itself and lives out is that Jesus is actually more like a pocket genie that you have that you rub to help you get all the other gods that you really want. Jesus is no longer the thing that you want, and I'm saying this to my own heart, by the way, but he's actually the one that we have to, to help us get the other things that we want in life. And we do what Thomas Jefferson did almost under the surface without knowing it. We instinctively uh, are allergic to any sort of doctrines or uh, biblical realities that seem to rub us the wrong way or push us in a different direction. And we just kind of instinctively cut those out and focus on the ones that we like. Mark Sayers in his excellent, excellent book, Disappearing Church, he says this. He says, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather it's the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. So it's not that we just throw God out at all, but we push him to the side and we sit in his chair and we start to call the shots. And we say to Jesus, yeah, Jesus, you do you and I'll do me. And I love the forgiveness. I love the salvation. I love the feeling of not having shame. But I'm not going to do what you say on sexuality. And I'm not going to do what you say about money. And I'm not going to do what you say about community and sacrifice. I'm going to do me in these areas. He's basically become our pocket genie that we carry around with us. Now, let, let me just pause and ask the question, are there any issues with any of this? Like, is the God of self a good option for life? Is the God of self maybe a, maybe there's wisdom there. Is the God of self a way that we should just say, you know what, we've tried Jesus and it doesn't work. Let's just pursue the God of self. Uh, I think what you'll find is as you follow this out to its logical conclusion, as you live this out in your own life, what you're gonna realize is that there's some glaring, glaring problems with the God of self, and here's why. Because the God of self demands sacrifices from you. Here's just a few. Let me give you three sacrifices that this God demands of you. Number one, this God demands that you must sacrifice relationships with other people. 
There's an 18th century preacher named Samuel Johnson. He says this. He says, he that overvalues himself will undervalue others. And he that undervalues others will oppose them. See, a lot of what's happening in our culture where we, we respond so vitriolically to people that disagree with us and, and there's all this like shaming and you know, all these things, what's happening actually in those moments is it's like we've puffed ourselves up to the point of ultimate being in the universe and we can't fathom that anybody would disagree with us, that anybody would see it differently. And so because we've seen ourselves so important, other people are pushed down and undervalued. Jesus' command to love God and others, it's been totally replaced by the cultural command to know and express thyself. And so we have no capabilities of stepping up into relationships and seeing it about the other person. It's, it's about me. Uh, there's some really interesting things happening with uh, uh, two different people, Myers and Jeeves. They're uh, two modern psychologists that are really pushing back against this idea that the problem with our humanity is a low self-esteem issue. They're pushing back on this. They wrote a book called Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith. And someone commenting on that book said this, time and again, experimenters have found that people readily accept credit when told that they have succeeded. Hey, you've, you've killed it at that. You've crushed it. Okay, I'm gonna accept credit for that. Attributing the success to their ability and effort. Yet, they attribute failure to external factors such as bad luck or the problems inherent in possibility. These self-serving attributions have been observed not only in laboratory situations, but also with athletes after victory or defeat, students after high or low exam grades, drivers after accidents, and married people, among whom conflict often derives from perceiving as oneself contributing more and benefiting less in the relationship than is fair. In virtually any area that is both subjective and socially desirable, most, listen to this, most people see themselves as better than average. Most business people see themselves as more ethical than the average business person. Most community residents see themselves as less prejudiced than their neighbors. Most people see themselves as more intelligent and as healthier than most other people. And listen to this, Myers and Jeeves conclude that the most common error in people's self-images is not an unrealistically low self-esteem, but rather self-serving pride. It's not an inferiority complex but a superiority complex. And what happens when you step into a relationship when you matter more than anyone else is that necessarily has to have a destructive effect on the relationship. So the God of self, it actually demands sacrifice of relationships, genuine, true, deep friendship with other people. Here's the second thing that the God of self demands. It demands that you must sacrifice your relationship with God demands that. Uh, let me just paint the picture like this. Um, you know that feeling when you fell in love, or maybe you haven't yet, and so you're thinking and dreaming about it? Imagine if you fell in love with someone, and you step into this really deep, intimate relationship with that person, and, and, and almost like it was just exciting and fresh and new, and that person lived in the same city. But then randomly, you just leave town. You don't, we'll just say it's a guy. You don't text her. You don't call her. You don't give her a heads up. You just leave town for two weeks. And then you come back in town, and she's like blowing up your phone, and hey, where are you? I've called you, and why'd you, like, where have you been, and are you okay? And, and you respond to that by saying, hey, listen, like, I'm my own person. You do you, and I'm going to do me. Like, don't, I, I'm only responsible for me here. I don't have to tell you where I'm going. Her response to you is going to be, yeah, you are your own person, and I'm out of this relationship. It's been fun, but thanks. I'm done. 
Because anytime you step into a real intimate relationship with someone, there necessarily has to be a diminishing of your personal authority and autonomy, and you start to give yourself to that person, and and, and all of a sudden be concerned about what they love and what they want, and, and now, in a real way, you're actually bound to that person. So it restricts your freedom because you get the joy of being in love with someone. Here's the thing with God. It's the same exact way. You cannot approach him and say, listen, I want your forgiveness and I want your salvation and I want your stuff, but I'm gonna do me and I'm responsible for me and just stay over there and I don't, I don't have to be accountable. Like, it doesn't work that way because as you follow Jesus and as you grow in your intimacy and desire for Jesus, you necessarily start to be more bound to him than you're bound to yourself. Again, Tim Keller Sorry to quote him so much, but it's really helpful. Um, he says this, uh, in 1971, I heard a talk that changed my life. The woman named Barbara Boyd said, if somebody says to me, come on in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, it's a bit of a problem because I can't separate them. It's not like the top half of me is Barbara and the bottom half of me is Boyd. So if you won't have Boyd, then you can't get Barbara. If you're gonna keep the Boyd out, I can't come in at all. She continued to say, To say to Jesus, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Answer my prayers. Do this for me. Do that for me. But don't be the absolute master of my life. Jesus, Savior, come in. But Lord, stay out. How can he come in at all? Because he's all Savior and he's all Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior and he's Savior because he's Lord. You have to sacrifice your relationship with with others. You've got to sacrifice your relationship with God And then finally, if you worship this God of self, eventually what happens is that you actually lose yourself. And here's what I mean. Like that that mantra, hey, whatever makes you happy, yeah, do that. Where do you draw the line on something like that? Heroin makes me happy. This destructive relationship makes me happy. Um, Pursuing my own internal desires makes me happy. Not having anyone tell me what's right or wrong or any sort of wisdom from the outside makes me happy. And listen, that never, ever, ever leads to more human thriving or flourishing. It always leads to chaos and shame and destruction. And by the way, that's the story of the Bible. You see, the God of self, it doesn't start uh, when Paul says, hey, in the last days, things are going to get crazy and people are going to become lovers of self. Actually, the God of self we see pop up in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. God gave them two ways to live. You have the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, you can, you can live in submission to me and in connection to me and you can put yourself underneath my authority and, and I will be your God and, and, and I will give you healthy, good restrictions in this world. So the tree of life, here's one way to live, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can choose to be your own God. You can call what is right and wrong yourself. You can make the decisions. You can do you. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they sin and they rebel, and they remove themselves from underneath the good authority of God, and they make themselves their own gods. They sit in his throne, as it were, and begin to call the shots on life. And what we see happening is not just personal internal shame, but we see corruption and chaos in our world start to ensue and grow and increase. If you pursue the God of self to its ultimate end, you actually end up losing yourself. Now, is there any good news in any of this? Like, this is weighty stuff, and and I think you see it in in your own life and in your own culture. I see it in my life, and I see it around us. Is there any good news? Well, here's, here's some amazing news. 
Because the way that God responds to people who have pushed him off his throne and sat in his chair is very different than how anybody would have ever guessed. We would have assumed that God would respond with incredible wrath and anger and wanting to crush humanity, but instead what God does is he responds with profound love. Just think about this. In our sin and pride, we refused to get off of God's throne. But in God's shocking love and humility, he actually gets off his throne to be near to us. We refuse to restrict ourselves and chose independence over relationship with God. But listen, God, he actually left heaven and entered our world and he restricted himself ultimately so much so that he became a human being so that he could have a relationship with us. With our self-centered lifestyles, we have put ourselves where only God deserved to be calling the shots in our lives. But listen to this. Because of his unbelievable love, God put himself where only man and woman deserved to be on a cross, bearing our sin and our rebellion and our shame and our throwing off of his authority. And he did that to bring us home to him, to reorder our lives, to not just give us forgiveness, but to help us know how to live as human beings. See, Jesus gave away all of his personal freedom, uh, eventually, ultimately, his own life in his death so that you and I could be brought out of our death. That's what Jesus was doing. This is what God has done. Therefore, listen, you can actually trust him because he's not this evil tyrant that is after uh, a joyless life that's not beautiful. He actually knows what's best. And, And so you can trust him. He's not trying to exploit you or ruin you. He's trying to heal you and forgive you and form you into the true human that you're supposed to be. This is what God is doing. Jesus sacrificed his independence so that you and I could sacrifice our independence for him. And return. And this is one of the most shocking things, and this I'm going to close with this. This is one of the most shocking things that Jesus ever says, in my opinion, in the Gospels. Matthew 16, verse 24. Let me read this to you. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses His life, for my sake, will find it. Jesus says, come after me, but what you have to do is you have to dethrone the God of self. You have to get out of the chair. You've got to actually submit yourself to me. If you want to come after me and follow me, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to pick up your cross, and you've got to come after me. Jesus is saying, hey, to be a Christian doesn't equal uh, easygoing, happy life. To be a Christian means that you are actually dying to yourself and you put yourself under the good authority of God. I'll explain it like this. Like, uh, if you're driving down the highway and you see another car driving down the highway, going about as fast as you are, 65, 70 miles an hour, and you look over and you see who's driving it, it's a five-year-old boy. It's like, oh, this is not going to end well. What's going to happen to the car? that car is going to either end up in a wreck or in the ditch. Why? Well, it's not the problem with the car. It's that cars are not supposed to be driven by five-year-old boys. So what's happening in our life and in our humanity, God is saying, listen, I actually want to come in and I want to be your Lord, not just your Savior. I want to be your King because I want to show you how to live. You are not supposed to be God. You actually make a really bad God. And when you try to be God, your life goes poorly. Deny yourself. 
come after me, follow me. And when you do that, when you give your life for me, you actually find your life. Here's what happens. It recovers a right relationship with other people. Now, because of the humility of Jesus, you can treat other people as better than yourselves. Right? It, it brings a right relationship with God where instead of just uh, being suspect of all of his rules, you actually put yourself underneath him because you realize that he loved you so much that he went to a cross for you. And what happens is it eventually gives you a right relationship with yourself where you can fully live the human life as God intended you to live. Not a life of, uh, of, of uh, joyless, sacrificial duty, but a life filled with beauty the way God designed us to live where he really is the God. 